based on Genesis chapter 48. Now, as we have seen in our, in our series in Genesis, Genesis is a book of life, explains and tells us about the beginning of life, but it is also a book of death. In many ways, the book of Genesis is a bit of a, a graveyard with uh, plenty of headstones telling us when people were born and when they died. Sometimes with a little short inscription behind it. The passage before us is a tender moment of three generations between a father, his son, and two of his grandkids. There will be a chance to talk to the other kids later in the next chapter, but for now this is personal, this is special, it is sensitive, it is emotional. We get to appreciate a more mellow, weary, less less uh, prideful uh, patriarch speaking on his deathbed, sharing his intimate thoughts, talking about his fortunate life, eventful, fortunate life. The tempo here is slow, the words are measured and nothing else seems to matter. Tertullian, a third century church father, while speaking about death, said, and I quote, it is a poor thing to fear that which is inevitable. It is a poor thing to fear that which is inevitable. We fear death, don't we? We do not like to talk about it because it is inevitable. And because of fear, it is a subject we do best to avoid. And when we do talk about it, it's usually in some type of jest or, you know, we the black humour type of thing that we don't really want to take it too seriously unless obviously confronted by it in, in, in deep mourning at a funeral, for example. Still, death is stalking each of us. And one day we will, we will surrender as we leave this world. Unless, of course, the Lord comes back before then. Hebrews 9.27 says this, People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Now in these last chapters in Genesis, Jacob is, is fading away and these last three or four chapters are really about his death. And what we learn here can help us as well. We get some, uh, how, as we prepare for the time when we have to say goodbye. And, and I would say that most of us, we will have a chance to say goodbye, but death could come at any moment, at any time. It doesn't There is no rhyme or reason a lot of the times on how it comes. 
But it's good that as you age, there is a process, there is a preparation, there is a saying goodbye like Jacob has done here. In verses 1 and 2, we see, we talk about getting ready. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. And when Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. The old patriarch was growing weaker and weaker. He sensed that the end was near and so he sent for his beloved son Joseph. And incidentally, this is the first mention of sickness in the Bible. That which occupies so much in our life, sickness and illness and all that type of stuff, we will have to wait 48 chapters before we see it, its appearance in the Bible. Now these 17 years that Jacob spent in Egypt, that he spent together with his son Joseph, when everybody, all the whole family was together, had mellowed and matured Joseph. When, Joseph, when Jacob went to see Pharaoh, we saw it last week, that he, he, when he first met Pharaoh, he said that his years had been difficult, that his life was, was harsh. But it seems that that is not his perspective now. He is facing imminent death and the, and the heaven that lies after it for the people of God is, is there waiting for him. And he's now looking forward, but he has to do his final goodbyes. So into Jacob's bedroom comes his dearest son Joseph and two of his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh incidentally means to forget and Ephraim means to be fruitful. Though these two boys were actually born during the, the seven years of, of the fat cows, the, the fruitful years in Egypt of abundance that were born to, to, to Joseph through his Egyptian wife. These boys would have been in their 20s. So they're not kids anymore. The old man is ready to go home. And as soon as the kids and son come in, he sits up on his bed. We usually think of worship, what we are doing here, right? But it doesn't have to be here. You know that, right? We can worship the Lord in many different circumstances and situations. But nevertheless, there is a conscious knowledge of the presence of God. Hebrews 11, the famous chapter about the Hall of Faith, talks about this episode and describes Jacob's actions here as an act of worship. As an act of worship. We're going to talk about that later. And it means to take God at his word and to base everything from the future upon that word, to take God seriously. That is an act of worship. And this is what it looks like when the righteous are living by faith. 
That is what it looks like. Remembering a special place, verses 3 to 4, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful, increase your numbers, I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to the descendants after you. Jacob was recalling, he was remembering the night when he met God, or God met him. Luz is the, the name for Bethel. Luz is actually, in Spanish it means light. Interestingly enough. There were two encounters. One as he was fleeing away from the promised land towards his uncle's house. That's with the stairway to heaven. And then as he was on his way back, the same place, God met him there again. He heard the voice of God, the promise of God, the reassurance of God that God was going to be with him. And they made a covenant with him. It was a special place. And it was the promises of God that sustained him through the difficult years that lie ahead. When you go through difficult times, difficult years some of you have been going through, you don't know how long those years will be. What is going to sustain you through all that time? I know that we all wish and want an easy life for ourselves, for our kids, for our descendants. It pains us to see them in pain going through turmoil and, and everything else. What sustains? What, what will sustain you? Can you just zone out and pretend it's not happening? Try and flee? Try and escape when you know very well that you can't? For Jacob... Bethel became the place, the source of strength, that special place where he knew that God was real, that God meant what he said and despite all his ups and downs, that was the anchor in his life, the moment when heaven was peeled back and God was there. Can you go, have you got a special place where God was more real than ever? For some it's a camp, for some it was a, a rally, for some it could have been a place out in the wilderness where you just say, wow, and you just worship and you say, wow, thank you Lord. And your mind, when, the, when you're, whatever it is you're going through, your mind goes back there and you're saying, nah, that was real. Whatever it is I'm going through now, this will, this will pass, this will fade, but that will not fade away. That is real. That was a special moment. That was a special place. And that's the type of place that will actually hold you together even as you're approaching death. 
whenever that moment may come. John Bacon was a renowned British sculptor. And uh, not many get to do this, but he actually, as a sculptor, got to write his own inscription on his tomb, which is in uh, Westminster Abbey, by the way. If you ever go there, look it up. John Bacon, can't forget the name, favourite food. Um, and this is, what, this is what he wrote. He was a famous, renowned sculptor and artist. And he said, and I quote, What I was as an artist seemed of some importance to me while I lived. But what I was as a believer in Jesus Christ is the only thing of importance to me now. Isn't that good? Everything else, the Apostle Paul said something similar. It's all dung, basically. Count it all as loss for Christ. When we, as Christians, look back at, you know, as the curtain starts to, to close, what do you think will be the most significant memories? I'm pretty sure we're not going to be thinking about our achievements, our degrees, our titles, our properties, our superannuation funds. I think what we'll be thinking about are the relationships that we've had and the most important relationship of all is the Lord our Saviour that we're about to meet fairly soon. That's, I've, I've, you and I, uh, some of, most of you here I'm pretty sure have been in that moment when somebody's about to, about to die and that's exactly what happens. For a believer, I can tell you it's a special moment. For the unbeliever, I can't say too much because there is, there is no hope. There is no, it's just uh, desperation for a lot of them. The fear of the unknown. But for us as believers, we know what's on the other side. And death is simply the threshold. It's a welcome home. A special place. Verses 5 to 13, we talk about the adoption Verses 5 to 13. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. At this significant moment, what is happening here is that Jacob informs his son Joseph of his intention to formally adopt his grandkids, as his sons. There's an upgrade. His two grandsons will be his own sons. So what you have in these verses is basically like a, like a ceremony of what is happening. What is the name is given and there's a blessing. Reuben and Simeon, they were Jacob's first two sons. They will be pushed lower. They will be downgraded. They were unsuitable for the privilege of the firstborn, Reuben due to the sin of 
sleeping with his auntie. No, no. Normally, the birthright then will go to the next in line, and that was Simeon. But no, because with Levi, they went and disgraced themselves through the mass murder of the Shechemites, which we spoke about in Genesis chapter 34. So it was Joseph, Joseph who, who was to receive the rights of the firstborn, but not him, but his two sons, because there is actually, if you look at the, at the list of the tribes of, of, the, of, of the Israelites, there is no actual tribe of Joseph. The tribes are Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's first two sons. Now, Chronicles explains to us, Chronicles is a historical book in the Bible. In 1 Chronicles 5, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, this is what he says. He says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Just gives us an explanation of what happened. And here we see the first instance in the Bible of that practice of laying on of hands. But this symbolic act, a person transfers spiritual power, a blessing to another. And Jacob symbolically transferred a blessing from himself to Joseph's sons. And once uttered, once spoken, these blessings cannot be reversible. And with his eyesight failing, I wonder, remember when Isaac, that's Jacob's father, his eyesight was failing and Jacob went and put on some some hairy skin and all of that, in order to fool his blind father and to receive the blessing instead of his brother Esau. I wonder if that episode was in the back of, of, of his, his mind now as he was also, his eyesight was shot and so as he was about to bless two boys, he wanted to make sure he knew what he was doing. He sat them on his knees holding him close and kissing him. Yes, his beloved grandchildren. I, um, I've got to be honest, I'm not looking forward to being a grandfather. It's not that getting old uh, worries me. Um, that's not the issue. I, um, it's the babysitting. <laughs> you know? Mom, Dad, can you mind the kids, please? I'm going to go. We're going out. We're actually going for a couple of weeks. Can you mind them for me? <laughs> uh, I know that it's going to happen anyway, whether you like to or not. And unfortunately what happens in this generation is that, that whole, there's a whole generation missing where grandparents almost, they become parents. 
because the kids are missing. Because of different circumstances. The grandparents, and at least I know for one, a couple of you here, that's exactly what happened. You had to bring up your own grandkids as your own son or daughter. And the responsibility is thrust on you. You're ready for retirement and everything else and suddenly you have to go back to parenting and saying, I thought we we went through that already. Now, I don't know what challenge God has, has for you, but I'm sure that whatever challenge it is, God will give you the strength. Now, I don't feel that strength at the moment, but I'm sure it'll kick in somewhere down the track, all right? Because I'm ready for the, the retirement, you know, the sail away, that type of thing. I'm ready for that. But I'm sure, and they, I've been told this by grandparents, I say, don't worry, it'll kick in, all right? So... In faith, I believe you. It hasn't kicked in yet. (laughs) But isn't it great when there are Christian grandparents who can impact their kids directly, the most important thing that you can possibly give, that even when your own kids aren't walking with the Lord, that you can impact that next generation with the most precious thing that you can possibly give. And that will be your challenge. That will be your challenge. And God will keep you alive. Yes. Heaven will be delayed because you have a role in your grandkids' lives because God cares about them. I hope that you're you're ready for it. I'm not, but I hope you are. Because God knows what challenge he has. And he'll give us strength. He will do that which is impossible. He is the one that gives us strength. Now the blessing. The blessing, verses 14 to 16. But Israel reached out his hand and put it on Ephraim's head. Though he was the younger and crossing his arms, he he put his his left hand on Manasseh's head and even though Manasseh was the firstborn. And then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and may they increase greatly on the earth. As soon as this uh, adoption ceremony was coming to an end, Joseph himself bowed down with his face to the ground in acknowledgement that he was submitting to God's will for his sons to become adopted by their grandfather. Even though Joseph was prime minister, he was bowing down to his elderly father. And, and, and here is one of the, the most beautiful and enduring descriptions of God uttered by any man. Jacob, the patriarch, realises, acknowledges, he can see now, looking back, that there has been a constant presence in his life. That God was always there, even though he had his ups and downs, God was always there. 
that after living through many dramatic changes and losing loved ones and, and conflict and everything else, through all the pain, he prayed. He said, may the God who has been my shepherd all of my life to this day bless these boys. That's verses 15 to 16. Jacob, there's a few firsts in this chapter, Jacob is the first person in the Bible to affectionately call Yahweh my shepherd. My shepherd. Comes from deep in the heart. It's full of imagery. Jacob was a shepherd. He compared his relationship to God as that of a shepherd and his sheep. From the time that the sheep, the little lambs are born through to their old age, the shepherd continues to care day and night. He guides, he protects through day and night. King David, King David, one of Jacob's illustrious descendants, also a shepherd boy, had the same conviction when he wrote the 23rd Psalm. He started off by saying that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And he concludes the 23rd Psalm that we know so well by saying, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So God's, God's dimension is, it's, continues, God's care continues, God's love is everlasting. It doesn't stop. Hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, Jesus said that he is the good shepherd who knows and loves us. God, the shepherd. And even though God has an itinerary for each of us, a course that we must run, our choices, the choices we make, are not irrelevant. We make decisions each and every day, large and small, significant and insignificant, some of which have life-altering consequences. When you are born, you are starting out, so you have it all in front of you. When you get old, you look back upon your life and there is time to reflect. As a kid, there is not a lot of time to reflect. You haven't lived long enough. And I suppose when you go through middle age is a time of confusion because you don't know whether you're coming or going. We need God's wisdom. And the answer gets clearer as we, as we get older and look back. As long as you, you resist the pride, let go of the pride and submit to God. We see that God has, we, we look back and we see that God has indeed led us all the way. Like Jacob, we can truthfully say, God has been my shepherd all my life to this day. He is lying on a deathbed and he looks back and you say, that's the journey I've travelled and here I am to this day. There are dark clouds that surround us in society, in our country, in the world, in the way that our faith will be practised in the future, the freedoms that we enjoy. There are dark clouds. 
We don't know what the future may hold. But we have the assurance that the shepherd will show us the way, each step of the way. The task for us, the decision that you and I have to make, is to obey him, to trust him, not to panic, not to make rash decisions, but to make sure that the choices that we do make are honouring to him. We can trust the all-knowing God with the unknown future. And when we get there, we can look back and say, yep, he was with me all the way. And then comes a switch, verses 17 to 20. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he, he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. Jacob crossed his hands over and placed his right hand, the hand of power, over Ephraim, the secondborn, instead of the firstborn. Joseph, who was observing this, was aghast. What what his father had done transgressed all the traditions of the day. And Joseph, these kids are 20 now, they're not kids anymore, he would have been training, he would have been training Manasseh as the firstborn with the responsibilities attached to it. He would have been, you know, the things that he needed to do and everything, the, the responsibilities. If you're a firstborn, you know exactly what the, your dad says to you, right? And your mum, come on, you have to be a good example to your kids. Everybody's watching you. Well, in those days, there was actually more than that. All the privileges. And Joseph doesn't like what is happening. He doesn't lose respect for his father, but he he watches what has happened and might be thinking, Dad, you can't see too well. What's going on? And Jacob, the patriarch, detects the, the distress in Joseph And he understands the feelings of his son and he says these tender words and he says, I know, my son, I know. I know what I'm doing. Tender word of sympathy and affection. Jacob knew what he was doing. Jacob was doing what God was telling him to do. As Christians, we will go through moments of perplexity where we will find it a little bit difficult to to see why God is doing what he's doing. Sometimes the God of Jacob will come to us and in a tender moment will, will say to us through a hymn, through a spoken word through the the word of a brother or a sister, through a moment of reflection, he will come to us and say, I know, I know my child, I know how you are feeling, I know how hard it is for you 
at this moment. I know what you're going through. I know. You don't have to understand it. You're not going to receive the full answer. But the words of assurance, I know, should be enough. Now, this will not be the first nor the last time where the firstborn children are less favoured. Isaac was a, a younger child. So was Jacob. So was Joseph. In fact, Joseph wasn't, he was younger. Moses was a younger child. Gideon was younger. And the, probably one of the most famous young children to come to the top was David. He wasn't even the list when the prophet came. Where is, surely there's more kids here. Oh, the little one. Yeah, the little one. King David. By blessing the young over the older, Jacob teaches us that God is no respecter of persons. What does that mean, that expression in the Bible, he's no respecter of persons? That means that God has his own way of doing things. In his sovereignty, God is absolutely free to choose some over others. But that's not fair. I know. To you it seems it's not fair. But God is just. God is fair in everything he does. As the clay, we have no right to argue with the potter. God does not exclude... Anyone on the basis of race, class, culture, education, social background, position. God's mercy does not depend on works. God chooses whom he will have mercy and compassion on and to what degree. It's his choice and he had taken Jacob a lifetime of divine discipline to learn this and now Jacob dared to trust God to believe his plans were best to believe his choices were the best he dared to do God's will despite the wishes of his illustrious powerful and godly son of course, Joseph was a godly man and yet there is a great disagreement here about the actions of his father. And this was Jacob's, in the book of Hebrews, it says this was Jacob's outstanding act of faith. In fact, it is the only thing recorded in the life of Jacob in the hall of faith from Hebrews 11. This is the only episode that is recorded. Hebrews 11.21 says this. It says, by faith, Jacob... When he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. This was just witness an act of worship. And while both Ephraim and Manasseh did become great tribes, Ephraim was in fact greater. In fact, the whole of the northern ten tribes, after the kingdom divided between the south and the north, the two tribes in the south, there were ten in the north. The whole of the northern tribes were actually referred to as the tribes of as Ephraim when the prophets uh, addressed them. Sadly, 
Sadly, however, in the long run, both tribes would fall away from God. That's what happened. But it happened in the south as well. And finally, the down payment, verses 21 to 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you I give one more ridge of land than to your brothers, the ridge I took from the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now Joseph lived out his career as Prime Minister of Egypt. By Joseph or by Jacob adopting those two boys as his own, his boys, his boys now would be belonging, they would be belonging to the shepherd people, the despised people that we looked at last week. Remember Moses? Hundreds, a few hundred years later, he grew up in the palace, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and the Bible tells us that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In fact, he, he identified with the despised peoples, with the slaves, just like Joseph's two sons. So there's no record of Joseph, despite the fact that he was the prime minister, there is no record that his kids also followed rank and position and power, just like Dad. Jacob firmly believed God's promise that the land was not going to be Egypt, that the promised land was in fact where God had originally said in Canaan. And a little piece of land in Shechem was the down payment of all that God would give his descendants as they battle for the land in the future. The book of, book of Joshua will tell us about the conquest of the land as they, the tribes start to retake the land that was promised. Sometimes God will give us a, a, a small pledge of that which he is preparing for us in the future. It doesn't have to be a lot, does it? But, it, but it's a down payment. A bit like a, like, a, like a house that you like and everything else. Okay, we're going to leave a $1,000 deposit because we're really interested in this. And then there's a formal deposit and that type of stuff. Do you know that as God's children, we also have a down payment? It is called the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14 says this, The Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We already have a pledge. We already have a deposit. We all already have the assurance that I'm serious. This is how serious I am. Where I'm giving you the spirit now. But it's a down payment for the glory, the unbelievable glory that awaits us in the promised land. I pray that we never lose focus of what God has prepared for us. No eye has seen. We can't imagine, we can't contemplate it, we can't possibly figure it out. 
what God has prepared for those who love him. Let us commend ourselves, our life now, our life in the future, into his hands. God, our shepherd, all the way, all the way into eternity. God bless us. Amen.